Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and grab yourself a copy of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Body Melt, Wonder Woman, Ice Cream Man, Christmas Evil, Dolomite, or my favorite, the Wisconsin Blood Trilogy of Blood Beef, Blood Hook, and the upcoming Blood Harvest. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Today's episode is also sponsored by Geopetric. Geopetric loves your pet. Their goal is to provide quality, first, eco-friendly pet products. They offer stylish apparel to represent the connection you and your pet have. Geopetric is embedded with the conscientious consumer in mind. That's why their gear is made in America, providing fair wage employment using eco-friendly material, including recycled bottles and vegan cork leather. Geopetric is also extremely charitable. They continue to partner with animal rescue and adoption programs across the globe to support their fundraising efforts with donations. When you shop, you save. Shelter animals across the globe appreciate the kindness and compassion of their shoppers. Another cool thing about Geopetric, they allow you to pup cycle your old gear. Do you have old collars and leashes sitting around? Don't throw that stuff away. Send it to your pals at Geopetric to get an amazing discount on your next purchase. Get it? Pup cycle? Yeah, you got it. You can visit Geopetric on their website at www.geopetric.com. That's G-E-O. P-E-T-R-I-C dot com. Geopetric. If you use the special promo code DOGENSTEIN20, you'll receive 20% off your next order. DOGENSTEIN, of course, being the Instagram name that we use for our dogs here at the Shameless Picture Show. Uh, my dogs, Ralphie and Frankenstein. You can find them on Instagram under the name DOGENSTEIN. So, once again, that's D-O-G-E-N-S-T-E-I-N-20, all one word, to get your special 20% off. So, once again, visit them at www.geopetric.com and find some cool stuff. Uh, but anyways, before we start talking about the movie and everything, I know I've already asked you how have you been, but, you know. But how have I been? How have you been? Tell me again. <laughs> Um, we've been. Are you are you familiar with the Marie Kondo? I've not watched it, but I've seen enough memes that I know what's going. I know what it is. Um, 
I we we watched it and um, like I came to the conclusion that I've been Marie Tondoing like my entire adult life. Oh but, yeah. But with the moving and like into a smaller space, um, we've been going through all of our stuff and just purging what didn't make us happy anymore. Understandable. Um, I, I, I've seen some of the memes. It's like, you know, she thinks you should only have 30 books. And it's like, well, she wouldn't like to see my 800 film collection, 800 <laughs> movie collection. Like, she, she'd walk into that room and probably fall over. I might kill Marie Kondo if she looked at my house. <laughs> well, her thing is she doesn't want you to get rid of anything that you don't want to get rid of. Like, so a hoarder would be like, well, I'm Marie Kondo in my life right now. Right, right. It's about <laughs> reacquainting your, yourself with your stuff and making okay. sure that the stuff you have is actually the stuff that you want. Like what stuff, not what stuff do you want to have right now, but what stuff do you want to take into your future? I want to take my four copies of Halloween. There you go. And if that's important <laughs> to you, like, I, I want to keep most of my board game collection. Yeah, and board games are awesome. And it looks nice, and it's all together, but I realized my record collection, I only listen to maybe 20 or 25 of my records. Send them to me. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take them. I, I found a guy at work uh, who's who's all over it. Um, beat you to the punch. Uh, plus, Damn I don't it. think I could afford shipping. No, a hundred no. records. I feel like a hundred records would be costly. Yeah, um, but like you know, I had a couple Rolling Stones albums and some Who Aww. albums that like, it's cool, but I never put on the Rolling Stones album. I always put on the Specials album or or you know, the the set that I always go to. So I, mean, I don't need this shit. <laughs> The Rolling Stone album I end up going back to all the time is for whatever reason Sticky Fingers. Okay. It's I don't know for some I reason had, that's the album I always go back to. I had Let It Bleed. Okay. Um and a couple others. Let Elton, it bleed was the Elton only one. John is Elton John lately is is always been kind of my go to. It's like if I want to listen to something. I had about six Elton John records and I realized that everything that I wanted was on the Greatest Hits album that I have. So I'm never gonna put on one of the other ones to listen to the to the deep cuts, um, but the deep cuts are so good. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I told you because Elton John <coughs> is one of my top five of all time. Um, for my birthday this last year, Amanda got me tickets to see his farewell tour. Yeah, I saw it on Facebook. It, That's I, awesome. it hasn't happened yet. I'm still waiting <laughs> for it, but he's coming. It's either February or March. That's awesome that he's coming here, and I was like. He, I'm, I, I've been saying to people, this better be his last fucking tour. <laughs> it won't. I'm gonna be. be pissed if it's not. Like you can do a couple one-offs, Elton John. But don't <laughs> you dare! Don't you dare do a full tour again. <laughs> well, maybe I'll pull out the couple of Elton Johns I have and send you those. Well, I'd appreciate that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what I have, because like uh, I inherited my fa- my father's record collection. Okay. And. Um, so I've got all of his stuff, and my dad was born in 1953, 54, one of the two. Okay. And so almost everything he had is originals. Nice. Uh, like, I found a, a copy of, um, like, a, a mint condition. Like, the, 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 the sleeve was a little beat up, but, like, the, in terms of the actual record, uh, Queen's Night at the Races. Nice. It's, like, perfect condition. It's like, I didn't know Dad was a Queen fan. <laughs> and, like, he had a lot of spooky tooth. 
It's like, it's like I, and like he had Shel Silverstein's spoken word album. Like, oh, nice! You had, some, you had weird taste. You're like a, a '70s hipster. <laughs> the best kind. Uh, last thing I'm going to talk about before we actually get to the movie, and this is related to the movie, the little kid Barry yeah. in the movie. I kept thinking, I imagine this is exactly what Nick looked like as a child. <laughs> That's funny. Anytime that kid was on screen, he's like, I bet this is what Nick looked like. I bet Nick was like a spitting image of this child. About a third of my notes are about Barry. So. <laughs> I actually took more notes today than I usually do on a movie that I haven't seen before. Okay. But I was like, there's a lot to unpack in this movie. I... I didn't take as many notes as I thought I would, or or maybe haven't watched it now. What I felt it deserved. Well, this for me, this is a lot of notes. I don't know if you can see that. That's oh, a yeah. lot of notes for me. Yeah, no, that's that's more than I took. <laughs> well, we had a great Highlander episode, and I had absolutely no notes, pretty much. So you know, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I guess that means we should, should we dive in? start the show. Just as a heads up, they're both doing construction right outside my door, and it sounds like they've started doing some kind of sound check or audio testing in the theater, so there's going to be a lot of background noise on my side. Please, for the love of God, stop the damn hammering. (laughs) For the love of God. (laughs) Oh, Simpsons and Scrooge never get old. Yep. (laughs) I guess I'll uh, read my intro. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. And welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and with me, as always, is a man who's known for flying rings around the moon, but I'm light years ahead on the highway. <laughs> Nick Richards. This was a hard movie to find one of those yeah. for, but once that old guy spoke, it's like, that's it. That's the lie. <laughs> I saw Bigfoot in 1976. <laughs> you know who that old guy was? No. He was the, uh, the shovel guy in Home Alone. The South Bend Shovel Slayer? Yeah, that was him. That's he looked old even then. Yeah. The man has never looked, not looked old. God, if, I wanted a whole movie in just of that guy. That had him to be 20 Bigfoot. years apart. Yeah. At least. Yeah, no, probably yeah. right on 20 years. Okay. Yeah, wow. like 19, like this was 77. Actually, close to 10. This is 77. That was like 1990. Okay. I thought, I think I was pinning Home Alone closer to like 94. Well, you know what? We've got the power of the internet on our side. Um, Are you going to doodle it? Uh, I'm actually just going to... Brought I've to you got, by S. Jeeves. I hear the music now. Yeah. Um, I have um, the um, Close Encounters Wikipedia up. Okay. And I was looking at John Williams' like career beforehand. <laughs> yep, Home Alone is 1990. Oh, wow. Go figure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that that old guy was was that guy. <laughs> <clears throat> but anyways, on today's episode, we'll be discussing something from both of our shameless Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. A large-scale power outage in Indiana forces electrician Roy Neary to go and investigate. 
While out in the middle of nowhere, Roy has an extraterrestrial experience that leaves him battered, bruised, and full of questions. This close encounter is Roy's new obsession, and he can't get an image of a large rock formation out of his mind. However, Roy isn't alone. Jillian is a single parent taking care of her three-year-old son, Barry, but Jillian's close encounter leaves her with even more questions, like, where did they take my son? Roy and Jillian set out to find this mysterious rock formation, find out who these creatures are, and to find Jillian's son's son sorry Jillian's son it's a quest for answers directed by Steven Spielberg in 1977 Close Encounters is one of Steven Spielberg's most personal films and is only one of four films that Spielberg wrote himself the film was a huge success for Spielberg and is considered to be one of the most influential science fiction films of all time along with Star Wars which came out the same year while some critics like Pauline Kael didn't love the film Ray Bradbury claims it to be one of the greatest science fiction films of all time it also swept the Oscars being nominated for eight awards, such as Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Best Visual Effects, Art Direction, Score, and so forth. However, the only award it won was Best Cinematography for Vilmos Zygmunt. Close Encounters also marks the second collaboration between Steven Spielberg and John Williams. They'd go on to work with, work with each other uh, another 15 times. Wow. Uh, the film stars Richard Dreyfuss, Francois Truffaut, Terry Garr, Bob Balaban, and Melinda Dillon. Can you say aircraft type? Uh, negative center, uh, no distinct outline. Tell you the truth, the target is rather brilliant. Wait a second, he's heading right for my windshield. The traffic is approaching head on. Alter right and really moving. And right by us, right now. That was really close. 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind of it? I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, Senator. This is nuts. What do you want? I just want to know that it's it's really happening. Recently had a close encounter. Close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? Boys! One, two, three. I'm seeing the shape. Damn it, I know this. I know what this is. This means something. What did you expect to find? An answer. Nice. Yeah. Uh, this was a hard uh, movie to, to write encapsulate. That, like, 
Yeah, because like it's like, do I start at the very beginning with like the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle shit? Like, do I even talk about Truffaut's character? It's, ugh, it was a pain in the ass. Well, in I a th- good way. I I think that's, um, precisely why I why I couldn't get my head around it. Also, in a good way. Like, I think. Narrative has structure, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and we've gotten used to a typical structure. And you can deviate from that structure and still tell a great story. And you can completely ignore it altogether and still tell a good story. I think this is a good story. But the structure of the narrative really threw me off. Like, I, I, I think I would need to watch it three or four more times before I could really start to get a sense of my feelings on the movie. Yeah, and I will say, like, I was completely just enamored with this film, like, pretty early on. Like, uh, Close Encounters was a film uh, that I've known about forever. I'm a pretty big Spielberg fan, but I've not seen everything he's made yet. It's kind of like, I like still having pockets of things, like, new films I can discover from a filmmaker I love. Yeah. So I don't track down everything right away. Um and this was one that I honestly was pushing off because I honestly thought I wasn't going to enjoy it. I've still got I'm I like science fiction. I don't love science fiction. When I was a kid, uh, I thought most science fiction was pretty boring. I'll be the first to. <laughs> um, so I still have that in the back of my brain. So while for the most part I, I I enjoy everything I see for science fiction, I'm always slightly hesitant going into it because yeah. like I still think of science fiction as being essentially courtroom dramas. In my head, that's how I see them, even though that's not the case. Like I feel most time it's scientists standing around talking. <laughs> and, that's interesting. Um, I, and that's not the case at all for yeah. most science fiction films. But in the back of my brain, that's what I see. That's it's just, what it is. Is scientists talking and like you know like moon rocks and I don't know in my in my head it's super fucking boring a lot of white lab coats <laughs> yeah but it's it's never that like this movie I will honestly say while it's not a fast movie it's like two hours and fifteen minutes and there's a longer director's cut <laughs> um, that uh, Roger Ebert said is an even better film okay um, um, and he said he loves the original version but he said that movie's even better. Um, it's a slow-moving movie, not in a bad way, but I was completely riveted pretty early on. Like, pretty much, like, we coined it last episode. My Thrill House moment <laughs> was pretty much the moment um, we first, uh, when Richard Dreyfus was in his truck and had yep. his encounter. I yep. was, they could have showed me anything from that point, and I was completely hooked. I, I agree. That was the moment for me, too. Cause like that was such a great moment too. Like cause, cause they already they already did the 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 headlight gag once where like car came up you're in the middle of the road. But then when it flew up, I'm like, yeah. <gasps> it was so so effective. So well, it worked I so fucking well. Audibly. Yeah, I did too. And Amanda was Amanda's doing her homework and she's like, what happened? And she's like, it's too hard to explain. It, a, a white we'll watch went it sometime. Vertical. <laughs> it was so good. And then uh, all the stuff inside the tab of the truck too was as the stuff was kind of flying at him and it felt weightless yeah i wonder like i'm uh, my filmmaker brain turned on i was like i wonder if they were like actually lifting the truck and moving it yeah um we're doing this up we're doing this episode a little back uh, ass backwards um <laughs> i guess we should talk about real quickly what we thought if if we liked the movie or not yeah um, um I, i'll go on a whim and say i think i might have liked it a little more than you 
I didn't dislike it. Oh, no, not Certainly. at all. It was a really fun watch. Um, I think I have to go back to, like, I, I need to peel off some more layers of it and watch it a few more times before I can really get a sense of what I actually feel about it. Like, for me, this, um, this watching mm-hmm. felt, it, in hindsight, it felt too surface level, like, because... Um, of things that I couldn't take for granted, you know, because Mm -hmm. of the different, the different format that this movie took, I didn't have the mental energy to really do a deep dive on it. So I would need to watch it a couple more times to really, it felt to me like several separate short films put together. I agree. Um, for actually for me, and I'll, I'll preface by saying I, I was kind of amazed by the film. Um, and maybe I might not feel that way the second time, but like it's, it kind of just blew me away in a way that I wasn't expecting. I thought, Oh, it's a Spielberg film. I'm probably going to find something I like about it. I'm probably going to enjoy it. I was not expecting to, I was also not expecting to have any sort of emotional reaction to a science fiction film. Cause a lot of science fiction films are pretty cold. Yeah. Um, but Spielberg's always really good about making really warm characters. But, um, for me, it felt more like an anthology film yes, where yeah. where it is a couple separate stories. So we have Lacombe, Lacombe and his his French translator <laughs> um, they, doing their thing. We have Jillian's story. We have Roy's story, which um, I could have watched an entire film just with Roy, even though he's kind of the centerpiece. Yeah, I sometimes forget how good Richard Dreyfus was. Two of you felt uh, compelled to be here? <laughs> yeah, you might say that. Because but, you, but what did you expect to find? An answer. That's not crazy, is it? Je crois qu'on pourrait les mettre dans l'hélicoptère avec les autres. Je parlerai au Major Walsh. Il faudrait peut-être vérifier sa crédibilité. Non, j'ai confiance dans mon intuition. Ces gens-là ont été choisis au hasard. C'était eux, ça aurait pu être d'autres. Ils n'ont rien de spécial. Ils sont simplement trouvés au bon endroit, au bon moment. Ho, 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 ho. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Is that it? Is that all you're, you're going to ask me? Well, I got a couple of thousand goddamn questions, you know? I want to speak to someone in charge. I want a lot to complaint. You have no right to make people crazy. You think I investigate every Walter Cronkite story there is, huh? If this is just nerve gas, how come I know everything in such detail? I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? <laughs> As a young actor, and especially like, uh, it was distracting at first with no beard, but the more I will, like, he just, he felt so much like an everyman, but you don't get out of a lot of actors nowadays. Yeah. Um, but no, what, what I loved about it is everyone kind of had their own separate story but it came together in the end. That's why I think of more of an anthology because all these, all these, these stories came together. Yeah. And, uh, that I really appreciate it. Cause like in my mind, what this story, what this movie was about, I really thought, um, the film was going to be, I knew it was about some sort of first contact with, with alien life, but I thought it was going to be like the story of, 
Richard Dreyfus being the only person who had any knowledge of these aliens, and it was just going to be him rallying people together to make first contact. Like, I didn't know there was this whole like, government conspiracy thing going on. I didn't realize there was, like, a small group of believers who had come in contact. Like, there was more to it than I was expecting, yeah. and that's part of what really made me uh, really dig this film. And it was also a nice surprise seeing Francois Truffaut. It's like, <laughs> holy shit. Um, One of the greatest French directors of all time is 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 slumming it with Spielberg. Right, right. <laughs> and I mean that I mean that I mean that lovingly because yeah. I love Spielberg. But like, you look at Truffaut's filmography, you look at Spielberg's filmography. They don't they don't seem like they'd be friends. Yeah, well, yeah. Spielberg has kind of the vibe of like a blue collar director. Yeah, yeah. He, he is the everyman director. Actually, uh, Bob Balaban says it best. Um, um, if you, I don't know if you have access to HBO. I do not. So, sign up for HBO <laughs> for uh, for the free trial, and go on there and watch um, the Steven Spielberg documentary. It's like three hours long. It's a deep okay. dive into his career. And what they do interestingly about it is they don't just talk about here he made this movie, then he made this movie. They talk about themes in his life and then associate the films that he made to okay. that so it's out of order but it's fascinating and bob balaban says it best um steven spielberg doesn't is not interested in making small personal movies he's interested in making big personal movies yeah and that's kind of where the disconnect between Truffaut and spielberg are Truffaut <laughs> is wants to make something small intimate and personal spielberg uh spielberg's like i want to make a large-scale science fiction epic that's really me commenting on the divorce of my parents okay Oh, interesting. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That, like, totally explains Terry Dar's character. <laughs> yep. The, 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 uh, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert clips throughout this episode uh, from the documentary, but of them talking about it. But, like, after seeing that, like, they directly talk about uh, uh, how Spielberg wrote some of the scenes from this movie based on his life experiences with his own father. Yeah. Okay. I... Like, I wanted a, I was okay with, you know, that, that scene was fantastic of him, like, shoveling the dirt and throwing the <laughs> so stuff funny through the window, me. and I'm fine, honey, I would be crazy, I would need help if I wasn't doing this, and she's throwing the kids in the car, like, I was cool with all that, and then he goes off to follow his instincts to, you know, this, this vision in his head, but then between the kiss with um that bothered me too i'll be completely the, honest with the mom from uh christmas story <laughs> yeah um but then also him getting on the ship and just like do, do you forget that you have kids like it seemed like that and that kind of plays into that whole anthology thing that um like i needed i had a hard time accepting the tail end of his story because it seemed like there were a couple of dots that weren't connected for me that that took him from this family man to and and sure you know there's already this this obsession with this vision and it's said, cool great I'm on board but he never dealt with on camera the disillusion like the separation from his family into this new thing and i'd be curious to see if the longer director's cut deals with that sure 
Uh, because like I, I can suspend my disbelief enough to believe that okay, here he's obsessed with this thing, and I also believe that his his thing with Terry Gar was nothing more than you believe me, and it's just like a moment of like I don't feel like because it was never treated as any sort of love story. I feel like the the kiss kind of came from like we are two people that actually believe each other, and it was like a heat of the moment type thing. Yeah. Um. But um. Uh, I but I can suspend my disbelief enough to believe that he is so in, consumed and obsessed with this that he has to go on that spaceship. Yeah. But I would I'm agree with you. I I I would have liked um and not even explanation. Like I don't need like a big scene of uh of ex- explanatory dialogue. Yeah, I just yeah. I would have liked just a little bit more even just another scene or two of that disconnect. Right. Um even of him like it could have been something because he one scene he tried calling his kid, his family, and like I, I could have liked another one of those where yeah. it's like he's he's trying less and less. Uh, however, going back to that dirt shoveling scene, there's this there's a line in there that makes me laugh because of how uh, crude it is. Uh, he says to her, "Just close your eyes and hold your breath, and everything will turn pretty." <laughs> I was like, "That's not cool, right?" <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, no, and then the, he continues to throw the dirt in there. He's like, he's like, I gotta show you something. You're gonna love it. <laughs> yeah, that um, line is like, is like a point on my, like on my shirt, like, Ew. yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, to to respond to your point, I I agree. Like, I believed it. I believed his character. I just felt like I wasn't taken on as much of his journey as I would have liked to have been. Yeah. So just and that's to, fair. Just to clarify. That's um, fair. I feel like this film is so... Uh, it's a balancing act because the film is so high concept. Yeah. With this idea of a first contact with the, the aliens. Calm down, Ralphie. <laughs> Sorry. If, if you hear whining, it's our, our new uh, Pitbull boxer mix, Ralphie. He does not like when I have my back to him for very long. Okay. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh, it's a balancing act because it's a big high concept film about first contact. And a lot of times you'll see movies just about that. And and they're made well. But um, what I appreciated about what Spielberg was trying to do, he's like, he wasn't, he wasn't content just telling that story. He wanted to tell the story about this, this, I don't want to say del, uh, being like this, this dive into madness. Cause I don't think that's necessarily it, but there's this obsession that you can't shake. Yeah. Um, and Spielberg has kind of said that for him, in a lot of ways, the person he was at this time when he made this film was Roy, a person who was so obsessed with the act of filmmaking that everything else around him got thrown away. Okay. And it's why he couldn't hold relationships together for the longest time. It's why he couldn't really keep friendships together because nothing mattered as much as making the next film. Okay, and total speculation based on what you said, but possibly comparing himself to his father and... Um, seeing yeah. his father in himself. Yeah, he actually says in that documentary, um, the scene of Roy when he's making the potato thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, and dad's just acting kind of... pretty funny, isn't he, kids? <laughs> and he just breaks down crying. Um, he said that was the exact moment with him and his family. They're all having dinner, and his dad just breaks down into tears. Wow. And Spielberg says, "I was a shitty kid." He's like, "I looked at him and just says, you 'You're a crybaby.'" And there's a scene in the extended cut of his of the son doing that to Roy. Nice. And I was like, "Shit, Spielberg, you're putting it all on this. You're yep. putting it all on screen here." I identified with this obsession that Richard Drives was struggling with. I was nearing in that movie. 
something opens up his imagination to go for something that he thinks is going to provide some cathartic answer. He had to go through chaos to reach some kind of clarity. He was an artist trying to plumb the depths of his imagination. And so I think, in, in a sense, Close Encounters is maybe the most, at least certainly the most personal film I had made up to that point, because it was also about the dissolution of a family. I remember when we moved to Northern California from Arizona. I had a sense that things weren't going well with my parents. And one day, my dad just broke down. And I never had seen my dad cry before. And I just stood there in the kitchen, outraged. And my father was not a man. He was crying like a little boy. And I started screaming, crybaby, at him as loud as I could. Just started screaming, crybaby, you crybaby, you crybaby, until they pushed me out of the kitchen. went from being completely joyful and, and celebrative about life itself to being full of despair and, and, and palpable sadness. <laughs> That's good. Like, uh, uh, I, I wrote a film uh, that never got made. Uh, we shopped it around for a little bit and still exists somewhere in some file folder. Um, but it's uh, my favorite scene that I've ever written that I pulled from my relationship with my dad, um, where um, the dad's a little more quiet and reserved, um, but there's a theme in the entire film about like what what makes you an adult, what makes you a man, um, and so there's this scene where uh, the the dad is teaching the son how to shoot a gun right a little mm -hmm. rifle yeah on the picnic table in the backyard shooting at beer cans um and then they have a little bit of conversation that you can tell that really matters to the kid and ends up like okay i'm having fun with this thing that ordinarily i'm not interested in at all but because it brought me closer to my dad and like going back and rereading that scene <coughs> It always like gives me the chills because I put something meaningful for my life on the page, and I think I did it successfully. And those always seem to be the scenes that really are elevated. Quentin Tarantino one time said about his film for True Romance, his script for True Romance, which he wrote but didn't direct. Um, and he said it was his mom's favorite script because she said, "Oh, this is you, one hundred percent." And uh, he always said that it's like you should put enough of yourself into your scripts that you should be embarrassed to show it to people. Right, right. <laughs> uh, whatever happened? Did you finish that script? I finished the script. Yeah, it was shopped around for a while. I wrote it for my uh, cousin-in-law, uh, who's another filmmaker, and we've worked together a lot. Um, so it was kind of his base idea that it was, it was actually an interesting writing experience because I wrote the script... And it was pretty close to what I wanted, but it wasn't perfect. And that was right when I was getting ready to produce uh, Normal. So I handed it off back off to him. And he said, all right, well, I might have another writer take a look at it and, and finish it up. I'm like, yeah, that's totally cool. Finished up 
normal. And then he brought it back to me. He said, I've actually gone through several writers. Um, here's the current guy who's working on it. Um, take a look. We think it's almost done. What do you think? And so I did another pass and I ended up throwing out the second two. I only left the first act because that was truest to what I wrote. Rewrote the second and third act completely. Sent it back and I said, um, so this probably isn't what you were expecting. But I totally rewrote it. And there were like a day or two from both the writer and my cousin um, saying like, oh, yeah okay, let me reread this a couple times and then ended up finishing all the rewrites with that other writer and ended up being a pretty good script. Uh, sci-fi, uh, dark, uh, not really sci-fi. Uh, would, um, would you say it could be done on a, on a low budget? Um, depending on your definition of low budget, perhaps. Uh, maybe this is a conversation better for off-air. Send, that, send me that script. Okay. I'm we'll looking for something to work on. Okay. And hell, we could have our first shameless production. Yeah, yep. Uh, send me that would... script if if it's okay. If your cousin, send me that script. Okay, yeah, I'll touch base with him because um, it it would be his to sign off on, and I don't know where he's at with it. Or s- send me send me whichever version is not his version. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to him. Uh, I'm I'm Cause... sure he, at the very least, he won't mind me sending it to you. Um, and he, I think he's. My impression is that he's moved on from it, uh, so maybe well, I, I could I could use a project. So, cool. uh, regardless, back to <laughs> Close Encounters. Um, but no, I completely agree. I feel like when you can you add that little bit of personal touch to something, uh, whether or not the audience knows it, there's just a moment of uh, uh, of reality to it. So, yeah. like um, a, a one that I I happen to like, and I don't know. I'm, this is completely speculation, but it's Shaun of the Dead. Have you seen Shaun of the Dead? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that his his mother calls him Pickle. And I was like, that is such a, a specific, weird, <laughs> right. unique nickname that if he, if that was, like, I'd be floored if that wasn't a nickname that his mother used for him. Right, Like, right. The, the director or the, oh, yeah, because I believe he wrote it as well. It's like, I'd be floored if that wasn't something specific from his life. I think when you do that, you end up putting more into the script than you realize. Um, you, you put... Uh, subtext in that you never intended and that gives it mm-hmm. life and that gives it things that even the writer and the director end up discovering upon subsequent watches of their own work um, so it, it it gives the audience something to explore that wasn't completely fabricated like a yeah. good portion of script is yeah I, I completely agree um, I'm going through my notes right now because there's a lot of stuff we could talk about. Yeah, mine are um, more uh, uh, like silly observations rather m- than uh, deep my, stuff. My stuff started as just uh, commented on the cinematography, so I guess we can we can talk about that for a little bit. Okay. Um, I've always loved the way that Spielberg shoots his movies. Yeah. Um, his, his use of um. Uh, it's kind of become a popular thing the last couple years because of the YouTube channel Every Frame of Painting. If you've okay. ever watched any of those videos, I have not. They, they are they are deep dive video essays on specific topics in films. And at one point, it, he did a whole episode on the Spielberg Warner, 
because he said a lot of filmmakers like Martin Scorsese draw attention to their to their one take. So like in Goodfellas, and they're going through the going through the club, through the kitchen, and everything. Yeah. He's like he's drawing attention to it. He wants you to see how big and boisterous and how impressive this one take is. Where Spielberg, on the other hand, will hide his because he'll he'll do one major establishing shot and have a lot of movement in it. Yeah. Where so that way you don't realize that it's a, it's 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 a one take, and I've always appreciated the way that Steven Spielberg essentially covers everything in his master. Um, uh, I think in um, um, one of our previous episodes, I played a voice clip from Brian De Palma talking about this. I remember your guys' conversation from that episode. Yeah, yeah where he was like, <laughs> "If you can't do it in your your master, you're hiding the fact that you can't block a scene." Right. <laughs> so whenever I watch Spielberg film, I'm always just uh, floored by it. it's like how f- he his very sparing use of close-ups. Yeah. Um, and I've always appreciated that. And then Vilmo Siegmund, he's uh, such a amazing shooter. It's kind of great to see their two worlds come together because I can see Spielberg's influence in the way that he likes to block his shit and uh, to shoot it. And then uh, uh, Siegmund's lighting style. And I, have I ever told you my Vilmo Siegmund story? No. Uh, I met the man, actually, oh, yeah? when I was in film school. Uh, I, I was in my cinematography class, and he was coming to Milwaukee to do a master class with everyone. Okay. And uh, we it was in my cinematography class, and uh, he, had, he had come in with a couple professors to grab some stuff because he was going to light a scene. He was going to show us all how to light a, a completely fabricated scene and how he goes about doing it. Okay. So he had to get like the – because in our, in our cinematography class, we had fake walls and everything because in cinematography class, we would take a scene. We'd, we'd all be given a style of lighting, and then we'd have to recreate it the best we could using the walls and the sets that we had and then try to recreate the lighting as close as we could. Okay. Uh, so he's coming through just getting props and shit. And I – we were shooting a scene from Metropolis – Nice. <laughs> and I was on camera. <laughs> I wasn't DP that day. I was just camera op. But, of course, he came straight for me. And I'm the most mediocre cameraman in the joint. I still am not a great cameraman. Um, and it was, you know, and at the time, like, I had I had longer hair. It was colored. I'm wearing, like, a Misfits t-shirt. My, my nails were colored black. I'm covered in tattoos and everything. And he comes straight for me. I'm shooting on an old Bolex camera. And... Because Metropolis was shot so wide, and we're shooting on 16 millimeters, so it's like I've only got a 4-3 frame, and I'm trying to figure out how to fit everything, yeah. and I, I'm up on a high ladder, and I've got the camera pointed down, and so the camera didn't fall. I had my wallet chain wrapped around it, and it's just it's a janky-looking setup, and he looks at things and goes, that's really smart. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, well, what's, wh- what are you trying to do? And I was like, we showed him the scene from Metropolis. He's like, I'm trying to recreate this shot where the character walks into the door, walks across the scene. That's all we're trying to do. He's like, but where the door is at to where he needs to, where the character's at, the, the frame's not wide enough. And I need to recreate it as was. And I can't figure out how far back to go where I can, it's where it's wide enough. And he goes, pan the camera. I was like, that's a, that's exactly what my thought was. But I need to recreate the scene as was. He's like, pan the camera. And then he walks away. And my teacher behind him is just shaking his head like, nope. Like, you better not pan. Because the point of it was to recreate it as it was. So he's right. back there shaking his head. He's like, who do I listen to? The man who's grading me or like a four-time Academy Award winning cinematographer? So he shot it both ways. <laughs> 
<laughs> ah, smart. Yeah. So that's my Vilma Zygmunt story. It, awesome. it has nothing to do with Close Encounters. It's just I, I've not gotten a chance to tell that story yet on, on the air. And uh. um, it was kind of surreal, like, having this legendary cinematographer come up and just even the couple words he said to me. Yeah, he thought something you did was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, like I had my wallet chain wrapped around the camera and then also wrapped around the ladder so that way it didn't <laughs> fall. It's just... And like he comes in, you know, looking like a cinematographer with a scarf and fancy <laughs> oh. vest and everything. And I was like, I'm just looking like I came from a punk show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, story. absolutely. Well, um... I'll use that as an opportunity to shift into um, their use of lights. Yeah, that's actually where I was going to go next too. (laughs) But lights. Um, The first off, you get the the beautiful skyscapes of the Midwest in the seventies before light pollution totally. Oh my God! Yes, so beautiful. And that's actually another thing I was going to mention. It, I know we're talking about the use of light, not lighting, but I will say one thing I appreciate about, uh, and I think this is a choice from Vilmos Siegmund, he's not afraid to let the image be dark. Yeah. Like, there's so many times where, like, there's that, that moment right right when Richard Dreyfus realizes, they're like, oh, I need to take the top off of this thing or whatever it is, and he's, like, being backlit by the window. He's almost completely in shadow, and it's I'm sure it was intentional because when he figures it out, he comes forward to the light. Yeah. And I was like, I love that it's not like I need to be – he needs to be lit all the time. Yeah. So. Uh, absolutely. Um, there was uh, – there's the light dad that we already talked about. Um, with yep, the, that was the great. car slash spaceship headlights, um, but the the fact that all of this is going to culminate in this large spaceship—not only the lights of the ships themselves, but the light bars that they use to communicate. Oh, that was great! Ship, too. Yeah, um, you can you can see all of that. Those seeds being planted from the very beginning of pay attention to the lights um, when they're doing that. Uh, press conference um which i like that scene more than i thought i was going to um they're they're showing a profile shot of the person behind the microphone and they have the the media's lights Mm -hmm. um in the back of that shot creating those lens flares that you see whenever a spaceship goes in and Mm -hmm. um i thought that was really cool um oh the i Having not seen this before, I'm being a huge Futurama nerd. Um, there's an episode that I didn't realize was referencing that five-note uh, song. Yeah. Uh, throughout the whole episode, um, they hear this this like series of synthesizer notes, and so they're trying to spend the entire episode figuring out where it's coming from and it turns out to be like nibbler's co-pilots like key fob that he's trying to figure out where he parked his car <laughs> i remember that now. um but i so i didn't realize that was a close encounters reference <laughs> actually uh, go, more references like um uh it was kind of great seeing the movie that i've seen aped so many times yeah like i'm a big simpsons guy so like when homer wanted to go to clown college and he was building like a circus tent out of potatoes and right so i was like oh being able to see the original scene that's based on is or like weird al spoofed it in uhf and okay uh 
it's I don't know. I, I we've talked about that in like in the Godfather episode. It's great seeing the scenes that these are that so many things are spoofing. It's right. kind of great to see the original <laughs> one. Um. Light year finally in on the joke. <laughs> exactly. Uh, another great use of light uh, was the was the abduction of Barry scene. Oh yeah, where the way they li- the, the 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 multicolored lights coming through the house, and then it, when she opened up the door, like that. There, there was scenes in this movie that like well, could legitimately be a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. it's the light creeping into the dark rooms. It like the light itself because you never see the aliens you never see the spaceship in that scene it's the light that is the antagonist that's what she was trying to keep out yeah yeah so i appreciated that um do you have any other examples if not i kind of have a segue that uh those are those are the main ones i should get a pen so i can tick these off as we go uh, the segue I was going to say, because we you mentioned a little bit about it before, was the lights in con- uh, of communication that they are using. Um, I love that in this film, a first contact with uh, the with the third kind, which I don't know what the first what? and second kind yes, are. Yes, I had the same Amanda, question. Amanda, Amanda was wondering what that was too. Uh, <laughs> I love that it's just you know, it's a conversation. It's just it, they're just talking. Yeah, you know, it's just how do we communicate with these people, or right. not people? How do we communicate with them? And it's because um, like other, like it's always kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit when like older science fiction films when they land and they speak perfect English. We have right. figured out your language, or just, they have. Oh, we have the universal translator device. Oh, great! Now everybody can hear it in English. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it too that like they're sent they're sending the notes back and forth, and the guys like I have no idea what the fuck we're saying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's just pray we're not insulting their mama. <laughs> yeah, and it's like I, I appreciate too that there. It's just it kind of remind me of the Star Trek episode we watched in episode one, where it's these two life forms trying to figure out how to speak with each other. Yep, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Yeah. When I was a kid, my dad took me to watch the Perseid meteor shower and introduced me to the sky as a place of unspeakable wonders. And because it was such a beautiful experience for me, the heavens promised if there was ever going to be, you know, a, a, a first meeting between an extraterrestrial civilization and our own, it would only be benign and constructive. It would be a conversation. These extraterrestrials are coming here. We don't know what they can speak, what they understand, or even what they see. So Stephen had this idea that communication should be a combination of sound and light. first thought mathematics would be the common language between intergalactic species, but I thought it would be much more emotional if music was how we spoke to one another. Yeah, so I really appreciated that, too, and it wasn't like... I also appreciated, too, the... um, that it didn't turn into like an alien invasion movie or anything like because it very very easily could have, and I just appreciate that it was like these two life forms respecting each other yeah you know they brought out their their little alien children and everything and it's um 
I don't know, I personally felt, while lacking sometimes in story and some character motivation, I personally thought the film was was a beautiful, uh, beautiful telling of of trying to figure out what it's what life is and what it is to be alive. Yeah. Like this kind of this film about discovery. I kind of felt that felt that's what this film was really about. It wasn't about the big special effects, which are fucking cool. It wasn't about <laughs> good performance. It was about just this, this idea of discovery. Yeah. And I think that's why it kind of knocked me on my ass as much as, as much as it did. It's like effects wise, you know, it rivals that some of the stuff that we saw in star Wars and whatnot. But like, as much as I love star Wars, star Wars didn't make me feel anything like this movie did. Yeah, or to- not as much, I should say. That that warm fuzzy Spielberg vibe that we were talking about before, like it's the sci-fi version of that. Yeah, and then um, like being a big fan of the uh, of Stranger Things, it's like, oh, I can nef- after seeing Close Encounters, like I can definitely see what the cre- what the Duffer Brothers were doing with Cersei's and a Stranger Things, how they wanted you to feel that. Yeah, yeah, in in uh, the same way that ET does. Yeah, E.T. I got to show E.T. Uh, to Amanda for the first time a couple of years ago, and I think she liked it. There's not many movies she dislikes, um, but like I was practically in tears. It's like, isn't this movie amazing? <laughs> and yeah. she liked it a lot, but like I, I cry so easily, so it's not even, it's not even a challenge. Uh, I, E.T. is like just right to my right to my tear button. I I need to watch that again. I have not watched it recently, uh, like in in this century i don't think <laughs> i'm gonna apologize again you're gonna hear loud whimpering uh it's, okay. it's ralphie hey ralphie i think he wants attention and i'm ignoring <laughs> him but no uh, going back to the conversation like I, said, I just i appreciated that that it was just these um they're just trying to figure it out and i also liked the idea that jillian and richard dreyfus's characters were invited i still haven't figured out why the aliens took barry Unless it was that that was their thing to make sure Jillian was there. Here, here's my theory: Barry deserved to be kidnapped. <laughs> that boy That's has harsh. no self-preservation skills. That's harsh. The whole time he's like, "I'm gonna run away with the aliens," and his mom is like, "No, please don't go into that strange land." Oh, mom, I'm gonna go. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, I'm having such a good time. Like, no, no self-preservation skills. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, Barry was only on the spaceship for a couple days. Yeah, he was. And, like, uh, apparently in the director's cut, there's scenes of inside the spaceship. And I'm kind of glad I didn't see it because I like the idea of it not being there. Yeah. Um, but a- as I was watching this film, uh, as we've talked about in the show before, I'm a big fan of, um, the Brady Bunch. Yep. Uh, Brady uh, in the set and Brady Bunch was just popular in the seventies. Like I couldn't help but think about the episode in the Brady Bunch where Greg is messing around with Bobby and making him believe there's UFOs outside of his window. Oh, I didn't see that episode. <laughs> oh, you should you should try you should try to track it down. It's kind of funny because Bobby is convinced that there is like UFOs, and <laughs> you find out later on it's just Greg messing with him. Like that's the big reveal in, in like the third act. It's just Greg with pie pin pie tins or something. So it's like. Like in the news conference, like the the photos of the of the flying saucer. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the news conference, um, it's kind of related. I have to say, like the idea of like I remember in that scene in the bunker where the government government is trying to create an ep- epidemic to hide what's gr- really going on is strangely timely. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like when they were happy, he's like, like, oh, we can say it's like a, it's a poisonous gas or whatever. And so that way to evacuate everyone, it's like, it's like this, this is the type of shit you'd hear going, you'd, you'd imagine going on now. There, there is a caravan coming for the southern border. <laughs> That's actually a pretty decent impression. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and then they got, they, they gave Carl Weathers a, a payday. That was kind of cool. Um, I admit, I miss that. Uh, Paulo Creed. He was uh, he was like the. Oh yes. Uh, yep. Yeah. I noticed that. Uh, and I was like, would he only show up in the one scene? I was like, name. that seemed like a that seemed like a wasted opportunity. I'm like, isn't that isn't that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is. <laughs> um, did you notice that uh, the newspaper headline uh, misspelled kidnapping? I did not. <laughs> they only put one P in it. <laughs> oh God. So it's kidnapping. Uh, there was one thing. Oh, um, one thing I wanted to talk about, and I want to do a little. I, I, it's one of those things I might need to tune back. Like I might need to go back to at some point. Uh, but uh, an interesting thing that I found myself paying attention to in this film, and that made me think of other times that Spielberg has done this. Uh, I know E.T. for a fact, and then in this film, and I feel like there's other examples of it, where Spielberg is using television as a for as a way to. Um, to progress the story in okay. a way where um, um, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to comp- compose my words together where um, there'll be events or movies, or television shows, newscasts on the TV that kind of give you an idea of where the story's going without actually saying it because uh, I remember this happened in ET quite a couple times too. But like when when Roy is building his giant monument, he has the, there's always TV on in the background yeah. of his house, yep. and the TV is audio is always in the forefront. So whether it be a movie or a news broadcast, it's kind of progressing the story for you. So it's it's interesting because you have the news broadcast talking about um, you know this this poisonous gas, or you'll have like a an old movie on in the background with dialogue that kind of ties into the themes right. of these film simultaneously while he's having a conversation with his wife and trying to get his kids back it's like here's a really genius device for spielberg to subconsciously tell you two stories at one time right and i could have sworn he's done it in multiple films but the only two i can think of right now is this film and (laughs) et but it's something that i really gravitated towards and it kind of gives the idea like spielberg talks about that you know he can't he was in a weird household as a kid in a lot of ways he was raised by tv and the idea that TV, the the television is there to kind of help progress the story. Yeah. Well, we've talked about um, in the past Spielberg's kind of connection to or it, the his role in Poltergeist. Yeah. Right, and how it kind of is, kind of isn't, but the the TV plays such a role in that film. Like that's the cover mm-hmm. of their marketing of of her standing at or sitting with her hands pressed against the static of the stream. Yeah. So, I don't know. I was thinking about that uh, when that scene was happening. And like I said, I, 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 I was kind of lost in a lot of the scenes that we were watching just because of like I said, how good Richard Dreyfus was. Yeah. yeah. Like, everything... Um, I thought Terry Dar was really good, too. Oh, yeah, she, she was great, too. She a whole lot of screen like, time, but honestly, she, she worked it. None of the actors in this film felt off to me. Like everyone no. felt very nat. That's the biggest thing I look for in terms of performances. I'm not looking for a big range. I'm not looking for how well you can cry and you know 
I want it to feel natural. I want the the words that the actors say to sound real. Right. And for it not to feel like they're trying to remember their lines for it to feel... Or, or that they're not performing. Yeah. And that's one thing I liked about all the actors in this movie. And like I said, I'll use, I keep going back to Richard Dreyfus, but like um, nothing felt rehearsed. Uh, I also pre... Because like I, 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 get, I can feel bad acting. You know, someone who's standing there, they don't really know what to do. He was always constantly doing something, working with something, and it's probably his theater background or his his method acting background where he he never stood still. He was always doing something, fidgeting with something, and it just made the scenes feel lived in. That just reminded me of the uh, the weird pull down map in his truck that blocked the entire windshield. <laughs> that was great. I don't care what anyone says. Well, I need one of those. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like in Terry Garwa, she didn't get a lot of screen time and that's, I, I was actually kind of bummed out because I was, I was invested in her story. Um, she was great too. And, uh, I feel like sometimes she's, she's, uh, known just for, um, Young Frankenstein. Young Frank. Was she in Young Frankenstein? Yeah. Who was she in Young Frankenstein? Um, the... Uh, roll, roll, roll in the hay. Oh, that's like okay. where I know Terry Gar from. Gotcha. Okay, but no, I thought she was her, her as her uh, her as Roy's wife. She was great. I I don't like that she was just kind of made into the nagging wife. Yeah, but you know, I appreciated though that she. she oh, you're crazy, right? Like. You, there, there was some depth to her reaction to it all too. Like, it, it kind of had, from from my perspective, the the tone of it doesn't matter if I believe you, mm-hmm. you're still acting bonkers. Like you still can't. You're staring the kids. Uh, you're obsessed with with this idea. Like, for me, it's not about whether or not I think you saw the spaceship or not. Oh, yeah. and when he takes her to that, uh, to where he saw the flying saucer, and she, like, oh, you never, like, we never do, you never take me to places like this anymore, just a kiss, and, and she, and they, he's like, oh, okay, and they kiss, but then his eyes wander up, back up to the sky. Um, I thought that was a great scene. Oh, I loved that scene too. Um, and it's like, at one point we were, when I was watching this movie, I had to turn to Amanda and be like, if I s- swore I saw a flying saucer, would you believe me? And she's like, probably. Like, Thank you. Thank you. But no, like I, I, I thought their, their, their relationship was fascinating to me because it seemed like I couldn't tell whether or not it seemed like they had a a troubled marriage before all this. Yeah. I feel like maybe they were stressed. He was the only one working. They had, what, three kids. Yeah. She has a line of dialogue where she clearly says, I'm not getting a job. Right. <laughs> Which is like, really? Come on. <laughs> uh, and if the, I, I imagine if they did have any 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 issues, like I don't feel like they, they were on the brink of divorce before this. I feel like maybe there there's some tensions. They are both a little stressed out. Maybe this is not the place they wanted to be in life. This pushed them over. This pushed them over the edge where that, she's just like, I can't do this anymore. That this was the catalyst 
that exacerbated all the pre-existing issues that they might have been able to coast through. Yeah. Um, and I thought the way that they treated that was was really interesting um, because it wasn't like it wasn't harped upon that they had issues before that. Yeah. But based on the way that they interact with each other, you can kind of infer that. Another. Oh, did you have something to say? Uh, just uh, to tag on kind of what we've already said that it wasn't. I didn't get the impression that it was because neither of them were trying either. Like yeah. I liked Terry Dar's interactions with him on that roadside, and then you know he he didn't seem like a bad guy or that he did anything particularly wrong. Just that they weren't as connected as they always. Yeah, and there, there's a there's a scene that I'm kind of bummed out they they cut out and. Uh, I only saw this scene because of the Spielberg documentary because I've not seen the full version of the, uh, the director's cut of the film yet. But um, after um, Roy uh, was crying, um, there's a scene later on where he's he's in the bathtub just with the shower shooting on him really, really heavy. Um, and um, Ronnie, his wife, is in there with him. And his son comes in and goes, you're a crybaby, you know, kind of the Spielberg thing I was telling you about before. You're yeah. a crybaby. That's all you ever are and everything. And uh, Ronnie actually yells at him. He's like, leave your father alone. Okay. And then, uh, he's like, he's like, he's allowed to feel that way. <laughs> it's right. like, it's like, I like that she's defending him in that scene too. Yeah. And then he's like, he's allowed to feel this way. It's such an interesting dynamic and I wish they would have kept it. Um Another actor I want to talk about was Melinda Dillon, who played Julian. Um, I personally forget how good she is sometimes because I can't not think of her as the mom from a Christmas story. Right. Uh, it was so much so Which weird. Which is I, a little campy and yeah, like, with intention. But like I, I had a friend over, my buddy Kyle, over recent. Uh, last month to watch the hockey movie Slapshot, which was an episode we were going to record. We've just he's been at Sundance um, lately, so we've not been All able right. to find the time. Um, uh, a, a documentary that his uh, his girlfriend worked on was playing there, so cool. they drove on down. But uh, uh, Linda Dillon was in that movie Topless, and I was like, this is the mom from The Christmas Story, and I'm seeing her boobs. This is weird <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm glad like she like I'm glad she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress because she was legitimately good in this film. Yeah, she was yeah, really good. Absolutely. And I was like, I I am glad to see because like whenever I see her, I think of Christmas Story and Harry and the Hendersons, and both are kind oh, of that's elevated, right. bigger performances. And yeah. like, I'm glad to see that she's legitimately great. <laughs> right. It took me three quarters of the way through the movie before I connected who who that was. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, oh, old oh, Christmas story. Okay, there it is. <laughs> I know her from something. What do I know her from? <laughs> um, fun fact about Francois Truffaut. And granted, this comes from Wikipedia, so take it. Uh, but I believe it's true. Uh, this was Truffaut's only acting role in a film that he did not direct, and his only role in an English language film. I'm just fascinated, like how he. Like, what's the backstory of how he got there? <laughs> yeah, and like, and he like he he was good. Too. Like, granted, he spoke French through most of it, but like the couple times he did speak English, and I was like, oh, he's legitimately good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just constantly fascinated. It's like, how did the director of the 400 Blows get into <laughs> Close Encounters 
of the third kind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm going to go back over my notes. Um, you said you had a lot of notes on Barry. Yeah. Um, Barry uh, looks more like an alien than the aliens did. <laughs> Especially in the beginning. <laughs> Also, you're, you're, you're so harsh on this child. He was like three years old. Also, the toys of the 70s and 80s are the stuff of nightmares. The you, know, you were talking about what? that, like that abduction scene being a horror movie. The intro was a horror movie. Oh with my all god! Those, like, all those toys, automated toys, oh. and then the music that started playing on his record player. Jesus, oh, horrible. Um. Also, clearly, this film was brought to you by McDonald's. <laughs> they had so many McDonald's signs and posters and things in the shots. I, I love uh, marketing in old movies. Yeah. Um, because now I feel like we've kind of gotten to a point where it's really subtle. Like, oh, if Lexus d- donated a car to this movie, uh, you know, things like that. Or um, And, like, we've gotten so used to just being bombarded with marketing and advertisements that we don't notice it. But, like, it stands out in old movies to, yeah. like... Terminator 2 is my favorite example of it where Pepsi Pepsi was one of their sponsors and there is a scene I uh, I swear I remember it a guy's drinking a Pepsi he has a Pepsi t-shirt on and there's a Pepsi machine in the background it's like there's three layers of Pepsi in this movie here's how amazing that branding worked I had zero recollection of any branding occurring in that film I had no like I had no idea when you just said that Pepsi popped into my head. I had like it worked. It worked. It, it permanently tied those two ideas in my head. Um, and then for Highlander, pretty sure Budweiser. Oh, was that I was would not be surprised all at all. That, that could whoever makes katanas <laughs> <clears throat> that are folded two hundred times. Hattori Hanzo sponsored that film. <laughs> Uh, but no, definitely, I, I wouldn't be surprised if McDonald's was a sponsor on this film. But like, uh, it's it's weird to think like now now it's going to be so weird for me to think that like oh, when I watch Close Encounters, I'm going to subconsciously want French fries. Right, and Heath Ledger. <laughs> Sorry, that's a Josie and the Pussycats reference. So. I was about to say I don't get that one. <laughs> um, I love. That, what was it, 2000 or 2001 Josie and the Pussycats film? I do, too. I was, I was was like, uh, because when that movie came out, I was like 11, 12 years old. I was like, I didn't like to admit how much. They came on, like, HBO all the time. Yeah. And I'd watch it all the time. And I found out it was done by the same writing and directing duo who did Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And they yep. also did the sequel to the Brady Bunch movie, which everything com- <laughs> everything is the Brady Bunch. Everything, everything comes Sim- back to the Brady Bunch. That or the Simpsons, man. It all <laughs> it all ties in. But the Brady Bunch did it first. <laughs> uh, my last note is that um, I felt like the end of the film felt a lot like a religious experience. I don't think that's unintentional. And yeah, especially tying in the those five notes when that's first introduced with that like chanting yeah um they also make reference earlier in the film to uh, uh the, the movie the ten commandments and i, I feel okay. like i've i've known spielberg to add religious iconography into his films before um 
And he talks about a little bit in that documentary, going back to that, um, that he grew up in a Jewish household, but they weren't overly Jewish. Like his grandfather was, his mom and dad didn't really raise him to be such, and he kind of rebelled against it. But it was something that constantly fascinated him. And it wasn't until his adult life after kind of exploring the themes in his movies that he went back and converted to Judaism. Okay. I, uh, until the, uh, you mentioned the going back to it in his adult life, um, that sounds a lot like my experience with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like, parents are, or at least my mom for sure, is religious, but we didn't, like, actively practice. Yeah. And I kind of rebelled against it. Um, but I'm, like, strangely fascinated by it. And it ends up entering everything that I write in one way or another. Yeah. Actually, um, going back real quick, uh, I'm scouring just internet pages as we're talking, <laughs> just to find something more something to talk about. Yeah. And you had talked about, we, well, we both had talked about that. We felt it was, an, it was a, a weird choice for Roy to leave his family and leave everything behind. And I talked about how I believe it's how Spiel, who Spielberg was at the time and was focused more on his, his passions than anything else. Yeah. Apparently, in a 2005 interview, uh, Spielberg stated that he, if he made Close Encounters today, Roy would have never left his family and went, went on the mothership. And he said a big part of that is he, did not, he didn't have children at the time when yeah. he made that film. Yeah. And your mind's in a different place. He was So this was 77. He made Jaws in 74. He's like in his 20s still. That is a, a, that is a choice. God, that's that a twenty. That is a choice that a 20-year-old would make. Right. If not, he's like in his very early thirties, but he's still yeah. a really young man with no family. Has not had a had not had a serious relationship, and is consumed one hundred percent by his work. Yeah, that is a choice that a young man makes. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good place to end or not, but <laughs> I I think um, I think that validates my feeling that it felt off yeah like even and and i'm not saying that he had to choose to not leave his family i just wanted a little bit more justification like i wanted to see why he was willing to throw and and just the obsession in and of itself wasn't enough i wanted to see him make that choice i didn't i never got to see him make that choice yeah, and, and it's I think interesting. That's what I missed. And give me one second. It, it I, I want to do like, quick some math. It felt like he didn't even like make that calculation. Like he had forgotten about them. Not that he made the choice to leave them. And it's it's fascinating too because I was curious because like I kept thinking of Richard Dreyfuss's character to be older in that film. How old yeah. would you if you had to guess? How old would you think he was in that film? The character. The character. Uh, I would say early thirties. Okay. Well, that, I don't know how old the character supposed to be, but Richard Dreyfuss was 30 years old when he made that film. Okay. Steven Spielberg was 29 and I kept thinking, it's like, Oh, it feels weird. Like maybe I would have believed it. It had it been a younger character who, who made those decisions. Sure. But like, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually more fascinated now that they are practically the same age and like I said, just Steven Spielberg did not have those life experiences. And I, at that point, Steven Spielberg would have gone on the spaceship. Yeah, I think it's 
it's less about age and more about the fact that he, a, as a writer and director, hadn't had kids yet mm-hmm. to know. Like you can you can theorize about it all you want until you have kids. You don't understand that that carnal pull towards yeah. it. And and there are plenty of deadbeat parents who do walk out on their kids. So that is a choice that human beings make that that could have been explored. That the obsession was too strong or you know that that's i'm okay that he made that choice yeah and, i didn't get to see him make the choice and i guess if anything if we're thinking about um his parents if if this is kind of him also talking about his his fair his parents maybe at the time that's kind of what he felt his dad did to them yeah he yeah. he left uh, which would then you're talking about him being a younger person and not understanding fully the the story that his father went through, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Like this this is one thing I love about cinema, and I guess you can you can attribute this to any form of art, but cinema is my favorite. Um, learning the the, uh, the story behind the filmmakers from just adds this new appreciation like I, I seriously recommend everyone go sign up for an account for HBO go for the <laughs> free trial and watch that Spielberg documentary because even if you're not a huge fan of him it'll make you go back and reconsider a lot of what he's done because um, Spielberg sometimes gets the gets the flack for being the everyman director he wants <laughs> to make a movie for the masses that everyone's gonna like which is not a bad thing at all but sometimes people feel that is a um, a what's the word i'm looking for a a flaw um i personally feel that it's not a flaw it's he's trying to relate to as many people as possible and there's been very few filmmakers i've been able to relate to that like i can with spielberg yeah i feel like and this is part of the reason i've broken up his filmography the way i have because i I discover i discover his films at certain points in my life and they mean different things to me right like John Carpenter is my all-time fil- favorite filmmaker of all time. John Carpenter's never made me feel anything the way that Spielberg does. Sure. So. Yeah. Oh, there's. Uh, the, yeah, I definitely have that. I, I think most. Maybe that's too too much of an assumption. A lot of people our age connect to the work of Spielberg in a way that we don't to any others because of the personal stuff he puts into the films because of the warmth that he puts into the films because of this like it's it's like he's world building Mm -hmm. but in a very realistic recognizable normal world yeah and that's that's one actually one thing that Steven Spielberg or not Steven Spielberg uh, Stephen King tries to do as well he tries to build these stories in believable worlds yeah but they don't feel incomplete. They don't feel isolated. They feel big, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that feels like there's always something to explore. Yeah, like that, that's part of the reason, like why ET worked so well for me as a kid, is because like I felt like I could relate to those kids. You know, the idea like when they pull out the globe to show an ET where they're at, and they put like a little like action figure on. It's like we're here. It's like yeah. I could see myself trying to communicate with this creature in a very similar way using the toys I've got around me. Right. Using your your 
BMX bikes to ride the alien through the woods to, you know, that's what Stranger Things capitalized on. Like, they found that warmth and the connection to mm-hmm. to kids of the 80s and 90s um, that that made all of that stuff so fuzzy for us when we were growing up. Yeah. Damn. Cool. I think this was a pretty decent uh, dive into this. Uh, I would like to find out what the first and second kind of Close Encounter are. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to look up. Maybe, maybe this is their third attempt. Maybe that's what they're saying. Right. <laughs> um, I'm also glad we did this episode when we did because um, the mo- the movie literally nef- left Netflix today. Oh, it did? <laughs> yeah. Like when I when I turned it up to watch, it's like leaving February 1st. I'm like, oh, fuck. Whoa. i, I got to finish this movie fast. <laughs> right, so, um, in, right in time. I'm glad we did this movie when we did. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I picked it because it was on my list and free to watch. <laughs> exactly. Um, we got to figure out what we're doing next. I know I'd like to do... I'll have to figure out... Uh, do you have a copy of the Blues Brothers? I do. All right. Because we could... I know uh, I've been wanting to do that episode because a uh, uh, friend of the show, Katie Cadaver, has been interested in being on the show. Uh, we'll have to figure out schedules, but we could potentially do that or have a backup choice as well. Okay. Um, I'm kind of covered for a little bit at the moment in terms of episodes, so we got a little time to figure it out. Oh, I would love to do that soon, so I'll uh, add it to my list to watch. Um, I actually have a nice... I um, Yeah, I'll watch it soon. Um, I've never seen it, so this will be... This will be I've seen... I've seen bits and pieces of it in like music classes, like I've seen some of the performances, Yeah, but I've never seen the actual whole movie. Oh... It's so it it's another one of those films that has this feel to it that you can't really explain, um, and I think it was one of the few like normal isn't an incredible film by any means. Hey, but I think I did capture the feel of like southern south side of Chicago and rural Illinois really successfully i think it has a feel based on those two locations and and the blues brothers captures the feel of the south side of chicago and downtown chicago in the early 80s okay uh in a way that no other film does really okay yeah so that's pretty cool okay well i'm looking for so tentatively we'll that that's the one i'm thinking um this is all inside baseball shit, but um, as of this coming week, um, I, I will start having Tuesdays off. Oh, that'd so be great. So that, that might make things a little easier. Like I said, we, we'll come up with a backup choice just in case we can't cool. align three schedules. Nice. Cool. But uh, as always, guys, thank you very much for listening. Um, as Listen always, to us on. <laughs> you, can, you can hear us on Spotify, Apple Ooh. Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Libsyn. We are practically every day. And if there's a place you, you can't find us, let me know. I'll submit, We're on YouTube. I'll submit it. We also. are also on YouTube. Tell us about the YouTube page, Nick. I can never remember the name of it. Um, we're our YouTube, well, the, the station's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash midshore community television. Uh, I have a nice little playlist there. Um, with all of our filmed episodes. We don't film every single episode, 
Um, but it's a good collection of our episodes there. Most recently, Highlander. Do you have Do you have a favorite? A favorite filmed episode? Yeah, because you do oh. most of the edits. Like I've got a favorite one that I've that I've like the video audio versions I've listened okay. to. What's your favorite filmed one? God, I haven't even. I haven't even thought about it. I'll have to go back. I I will answer that question for you next time. I'll keep you all on the edge of your seats. <laughs> well, I will say one of my favorite epi- uh, um, cut-together episodes, um, Dead Air, real quick, because I need yeah. to pull up the um, the list. I've got a couple of them. So that way when you all... Are looking for something if you're if you're if you're if you're new to the show if this is your first time coming coming our way and listening to the show i'm going to give you a quick little rundown of episodes that i happen to like nice you know what i do have an answer for you it's more based on our discussion um but i think my favorite discussion that i've had with you and it is one of our filmed ones gone with the wind Yes, I really like that episode because for me, when I when I think about which ones I really like, I try to think what was not only a good discussion, but I I did some stuff in the edit that I I really enjoy. Uh, for me, and that's like I try to make these when I can. I try to make these academic, to an extent. Yeah. So I like to try to find clips from directors talking about things and so on and so forth. Uh, ones that I really like to Gone with the Wind, uh, and you actually have a great moment in the video version of that where you cut in a. a a place where about how three strip technicolor works oh yeah that's right <laughs> I, I really like that uh um uh, it's not an episode we did together but i've always really liked our slasher my slasher films episode i did with um um a buddy of mine brennan klein i did a okay. that episode yeah. with a buddy of mine named brennan klein who used to who writes for blumhouse.com um i've always thought our planet of the apes episode was good yeah rocky i think is great we filmed both of those rocky and planet of the apes um, I also really enjoy. Well, Rocky had that great interview with Lloyd Kaufman in it. That's part of the reason why it's because I've listened to a lot of interviews with Lloyd Kaufman. He doesn't talk about non-trauma things very often. Yeah. So to get him to talk about Rocky was great. Um, I also really liked uh, this. I liked this. I liked my sum, the summer movie episode. Okay. Um. I also really liked um, slow burn horror films. Nice. In terms of the end. And surprisingly, Highlander was a lot of fun, too, <laughs> to <was>. cut. <laughs> so uh, there, there's a couple episodes that I recommend you guys should all go back and listen to. Um, and uh, where, can, where can the kids find you at home, Nick? Um, my address is... No. Uh, <laughs> my Instagram is a pick worth 1000 words the number 1000 words um i'm on facebook nicholas richards i don't know if i have an at or anything or username or anything for that um twitter i think is the only twitter account i have was for my cooking themed card game that never got off the ground but i think made from scratch game it's a shame i wanted that to exist yeah it, it was i i think still think it's a really good game um but i couldn't afford to have it produced uh kickstarter is a full-time job to oh, for a year it's fucking terrible um and working with uh manufacturers in china is there's a there's a lot that can go wrong 
Um, so that is very intimidating. And we tried getting it picked up through other publishers and a lot of really good feedback, a lot of really positive thoughts on it, but no one was interested in picking it up. So, so there it sits. All right. Well, you can find me uh, on Facebook. Just search my name, Michael Vyers. On Instagram, Mike, at Michael underscore Vyers. Uh, and you can find the show at Shameless Picture Show. So we're all we're we're pretty easy to find. We uh, we try to update those uh, as much as we can. And uh, as always, guys, rate, review, subscribe. That helps us out, uh, especially now that we're on Spotify. That was a big get for us. Yeah. So it is now the most universal podcast listening app ever, uh, with Apple being number two. Uh, so check us out on there. And uh, to quote the professional wrestling tag team, D-Generation X. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you! Watch movies. Woo! Oh, yeah!